Hi, and welcome to Make It Make Sense with Sareka Thanendra Dharaman, a podcast that aims to demystify the less-than-transparent publishing industry by talking to authors from historically underrepresented backgrounds. I believe that the more we make sense of how things work on the inside, the less we feel as though we're on the outside. Because learning from other authors, editors and agents that have made sense of their journeys should hopefully inspire many more to embark on their very own. Each week, I'll be asking a new interviewee the things they've made sense of in their careers, as well as anything they'd like to make sense of for fellow writers. Today, we speak to author Kasim Ali about his debut novel, Good Intentions, a book rooted in the weight of family obligation, racial prejudice and young love. Kasim masterfully weaves anti-blackness within the South Asian community and its impact on Noor and Yasmina's relationship through his novel. It cleverly addresses an aspect of racism not often written about. Diana Evans, author of Ordinary People, calls the book sensitive, smooth-toned and absorbingly honest. We speak to Kasim about his endless determination to write a story for people like him to find themselves in, how he made it past multiple rejections of multiple manuscripts before good intentions hit, and one of the best pieces of advice I've ever heard, and what he thinks is important in order to be the best writer you can be. We also talk about his moving dedication to his grandparents. Hi, Kasim. Welcome to Make It Make Sense. Hey, Sereka. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, I love I love your background, as I mentioned just before we started <laughs> recording. For anyone who is listening, she's got this incredible blue sofa set behind her with this beautiful plant who, I don't know the name of it, and it just looks like such an incredibly professional setup. She's putting me to shame. <laughs> Okay, thank you. This isn't on video, so I'm sure the listeners appreciate the description. Um, it's so nice to meet you after all of our emails back and forth. I read a lot of books and I wanted to read your book really close to our recording um, because I wanted everything to stay fresh in my mind. But I have a feeling this story is going to stay with me for a while because it's written so beautifully. Um, I emailed you when I received your book and told you that after I read the dedication, I had a feeling I was going to be super emotional reading this book. So we're going to talk about that in a little bit and the importance of that dedication to you. But I want to start by asking, what did you want to be when you were younger? Oh, wow. We're going right back to my childhood. Right okay. back. <laughs> um, so I have this distinct memory of being super young and wanting to be um, a basketball player. And I have no idea why we didn't have <laughs> access to a basketball um hoop net whatever you want to cool. call it yeah um we didn't have access to one of those like uh, there was a park near me that that had tennis courts and um yeah I never played basketball at school then I started working in publishing I have no idea how that happened by the way like people ask me all the time like how did you get yeah. into publishing and I'm like I googled something and I applied for a job and I interviewed and I got it I have no idea how I got in publishing because loads of people in publishing are like I did two years of unpaid work experience mm. and I was working in a bookshop and I I I networked my ass off and I'm like you just googled yeah I just googled <laughs> we should say that you are an assistant editor at Penguin Random House um, yes. and so that uh, I guess a question I have is whether 
I know you didn't know you wanted to get into publishing and you just applied for a job, but did you know before that, that you wanted to write or did that come while you were working as an editor? Oh, the writing thing came from when I was uh, a teeny tiny kid. I remember, um, it's it's very funny, but also kind of sad a little bit, I think. Um, I remember when I came home from university one time and my mom had gone through, I think, these like drawers in her room and she just kind of like pulled out all these old things and she pulled out this teeny tiny book that I'd written when I was like six oh. or seven years old. And it was just like stapled together, it was just A4 pieces okay. of paper. Yeah. Um, and I'd drawn on it as well. And I was a very bad artist. And the story was about, it's so funny, but so sad. It was about a kid who found a pair of sneakers. That's what I used, the word sneakers. I was very Americanized, <laughs> clearly, when I was growing yeah. up. Yeah. Um, he found a pair of sneakers on the road and he put them on and realized he could run really fast when he was wearing the sneakers. And then he ran so fast that he turned back time oh. and ended up in the age of the dinosaurs. And then a dinosaur ate him. <laughs> um, so I, I very clearly wanted to write when I was a kid. And then yeah. from there, I just started writing short stories at first. And then um, basically from the age of like 17 to like 24 25 I wrote like two and a half books a year wow wow yeah but I want to ask you good intentions is a book about a young man Noor who finds himself stuck between two worlds the one he lives with his friends and girlfriend Yasmina and the one he finds himself being brought back to with his siblings and his little c conservative Pakistani Muslim parents which I think is such a good short form um, to tell us what kind of household Noor comes from, because I come from a, I think, little C conservative Tamil Sri Lankan background. And um, yeah, I, I love that uh, description of them. Uh, why was it important for you to tell this story as your, as your debut? I think, so when I was writing it, I wasn't thinking about it being my debut because of all the rejection that we'll get to mm. later. Um, but I, kind of you know through my writing I wanted I sort of have learned this over the past couple of years in reading Good Intentions closely and editing it and sort of thinking about myself as a writer which sounds very sort of highfalutin or whatever but it's it's just something that naturally happens when you spend such a long time looking at one thing mm. that you've created and I realized that unconsciously or without really ever thinking about it I was trying to replicate my own world in a way that I'd never seen written down mm. Um, the reason I say unconsciously is because I think, I think if you'd asked me why I was writing Good Intentions at the time, I would have said, I'm writing this because it's fun to write. Mm-hmm. And that would, that was, that was kind of fit. Like, you know, there were other things that were like, you know, I want to write an interracial romance and I want to explore anti-blackness in the South Asian community. But I think I would have said, I'm writing this because I love writing. Mm-hmm. But now looking back, I'm like, it was that you did love writing, but also you were writing about yourself. You were writing yeah. about, this is weird. Now I'm talking to myself, like I'm in a therapy session, but <laughs> you know, that Kasim was writing about the lack on the page that, you know, but like all the books that I read in my life, I can't point, mm. uh, I can't point to a book that has a protagonist like mood in it. And that kind of, it kind of destroys me a little bit. And so one, like, I'm so happy to be published because I'm so happy to finally get here and it's so great and thrilling and terrifying, but also I'm so happy that other people are able to read about 
yeah. uh, protagonists like him. Touching on that, uh, what you write so well is also growing up in a South Asian household. You write things that are seemingly small for maybe people that don't come from backgrounds like us, like Noor, arguing with his mother about the importance of attending a wedding or not, or the constant state of vigilance he finds himself in, worried that he's going to get caught out in this lie. Um, you take readers skillfully through Noor's struggle between the two worlds that he finds himself in. And you show us the pressure of trying to please everyone, but you also give us Yasmina's side of the story and what her journey is. Um, and they both share some references, but um, they come from different households and backgrounds. And I want to read something that Yasmina says to Noor, which is maybe if you had been honest with them two years ago, three years, four years, maybe if you had just tried, this whole disaster might not have happened. But instead, I've spent all this time hiding myself away, making myself small, so that your parents don't crucify you. I've become this person who doubts herself constantly. And I think you write and play with both sides of that story so well, um, because you make us empathize for both Noor and Yasmina. Um, can you tell us how you came to form these two characters like you did and to find those similarities? I know Noor, you could draw from your own background a little bit, um, but Yasmina and that kind of tension that plays out between them and as you've spoken about anti-blackness, so forth within the South Asian community. Um, how did you form that as the basis of your two characters? So yeah, nude is easier to talk about, I think, mm -hmm. because or simpler to talk about because, you know, I drew on aspects of my own life and aspects of my friends' lives and kind of the, the, the feeling of my childhood and also, you know, kind of my own feelings right now about family and the expectation and the pressure of family and that kind of very fragile relationship between um, me growing up and becoming more independent and forging my own path in life, which is not necessarily the path my parents want for me. Mm. So that all quite, quite simple for me. <laughs> it's, it's taking feelings I already have. It's taking an experience I already have being yeah. on the page. Yasmina was more interesting to write. And I kind of struggled, like not struggled, but I had this, I had this thing in the back of my head when I was writing the first draft where I was like, should I be writing from her perspective? Because mm. I would have loved to have done that. I would have loved to have written from her perspective, but I held myself back because, I mean, A, and I'll get to this in a second, there was a thing I wanted to do with the book, but B, it was about, I am not a Black woman. And can I authentically mm. write from that experience? I'm so glad you wrote it from Noor's perspective because it's really refreshing to read this dilemma presented by a Muslim Pakistani uh, boy, a uh, man, young man, um, because <laughs> I know a lot of family and friends, myself included, that have wrestled with similar um, issues with when to tell parents and if to tell parents. And um, even if that I haven't read that in books, I know that it is so refreshing and it will be refreshing for people to read it from the male perspective. And I think you did a real service to not to choose not to write from a perspective that you didn't feel, you know, you could write as authentically because you did such a good job with writing Nora's perspective and also giving us Yasmina. So um, I think you, you did excellently. It, 
I can't wait for people to read it and for you to hear all the feedback. Cause I think as you've touched on, we don't hear and read and see as much as we should of our own selves in books and, and on screen. And I think that's changing definitely, but um, Good Intentions is doing so much to change that as well. Um, I just want to- well, Before you move on, I yeah. just want to say thank you. Just want to oh. say thank you so much. Cause I think um, I will never get over this feeling of having somebody tell me that my writing, um, like they related to it and they found so much of themselves in it because it kind of blows my mind that I wrote this to find myself in it. And now all of all of mm. these people are telling me they found themselves in it. It's like the the biggest compliment. It's honestly the biggest compliment I can have. Like I'm, I'm like got goosebumps on my arms right now because oh. you said that. Oh. <laughs> You're going to hear it a lot more. I also want to touch on um, what you do so well and so magnificently is your dialogue in your novel. Um, there were times where, I could see it playing on a screen or I felt like I was in the room with the, the people speaking or um, I wanted to be friends with these fictional characters. Um, is that something that out of writing multiple stories you uh, became naturally good at or um, because I think writers can struggle with dialogue and make that leap off the page. Um, is it something you naturally honed or is it a result of constant edits um, and working into your book on the path to publication? So I, it's so fascinating to hear that because I never thought that I was, I have a friend of mine who reads kind of everything that I write and she always says to me, your dialogue is so good, your dialogue is so good, mm. your dialogue is so good. And I'm always like, you're my friend. You know, you're just, you're just <laughs> you're saying that. Say that. Um, so I never thought that my dialogue was anything except just fine. Like I yes. thought it was doing its job. It's fine. Um, until this book, when all the editors who are trying to buy the book, which makes me sound really arrogant and like, oh, all these editors. No. But yeah. every single every single one of them said, your dialogue is just like singing on the page. And when we edited it, we didn't edit the dialogue. Amazing. So it's kind of what you see is is very, very, very close to yeah. what was in that first draft. It's actually all the descriptions around it because I'm terrible at descriptions. Mm -hmm. I'm terrible at being like, this is what this person looks like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm kind of awful at that because I think I just want to get to the, I want to get to what what makes my heart sing is like conversations. I love mm. hearing people talk. Like you said, it's so dynamic and um, yeah, it's just written, it's so authentic and that's what's hard to catch with dialogue, to make it authentic and, and really true to each character. And you write it in a way that you can almost feel the the back and forth at the at the pace that it would be happening in front of you, which is very hard to do. I think I, I feel like people are now going to, once they know you, they're now going to be really conscious of if you're sitting next to them on on the train or <laughs> suddenly like all the all their voices drop everyone down to just, a whisper everyone just stops talking yeah, um, yeah. My, he's here I um my favorite scene sorry from the book is that party scene in chapter two when mm -hmm. they meet for the first time oh my god every time right. I read it I love it so, so much good. because yeah it, and I'm talking as a reader now and not as a writer so hopefully this isn't too arrogant on myself but when I whenever I read that chapter I'm like this is so good because it, it just <laughs> it like cements everyone. Yeah. Like Sara yeah. has a completely different voice to Imran, yes. who has a completely different voice to Noor, who has a completely different voice to Yasmina. Maybe this is a good time then to touch on the dedication that you have in your book. Would you like to read it or should I? 
Um, it says to Asmat Begum and Burkat Ali, without you, there is nothing. With you, there is the world. Um, and uh, so they basically trying really hard not to self-deprecate and make some jokes because it's 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 mm. sad. Um, those are my <clears throat> maternal grandparents. So Asmat is my grandma and Burkat is my grandfather. Um, and basically he came to the UK around kind of the 60s. And it was when a lot of South Asian uh, people, Pakistani people were coming to Britain to kind of find their fortune here. And, you know, because there was that whole narrative about come to England, <clears throat> make lots of money, um, come live here. This is the motherland, right? Mm-hmm. So he he came over. And from what I understand, because he passed away in 2012, um, and I'm I'm always really sad about that because I would love to talk to him now as an adult because mm. I was I was um 17 when he when he died and I was just a kid and I I have so many questions now for him that will never mm. be answered. Yeah. But from what I understand, he came over here with um sort of a bunch of men from his village and they all lived in this teeny tiny house in Birmingham and they worked at a factory and he just that was his entire life and he was already married to my grandma and she was in Pakistan kind of waiting for him to come back and then after a couple of years I think he reached out to her and he was like you should come here come here we'll have kids we'll have a family like there's just so much here so she came over she lived in that tiny house with these other men and their their wives also came over so it turned Mm -hmm. into this like very strange, odd family situation where you had all these men and their wives. Um, and then slowly they started moving out as they bought houses um, and they decided to stay. And they had like my mom and mm. her siblings. Um, and then obviously my mom had me. And so without them, like I wouldn't be here. Mm. And I'm so yeah, aware of that fact. And it blows my mind now to think that this man who younger than I am now came over to a country where he didn't know the language, didn't know anybody, just came to work. And that's what he did. Mm. Um, supported his family back in Pakistan his entire life. Like he wrote, he, he raised six children and married yeah. them off and gave them weddings and helped them buy houses whilst also supporting his massive family back in Pakistan. Like it blows my mind. Amazing. I don't know how he did it. Um, yeah. So yeah, in, in 2012, my granddad he passed away um and then my grandma who yeah i was very close to um basically she um in 2020 in the summer of 2020 she uh, was diagnosed with cancer and it was really rough because i was in london mm. and so i couldn't come back because of the coronavirus and stuff um so it was really hard and mm. then i saw her Oh, I think I can count it on one hand how many times I saw her between like March 2020 and July 2021 when she died. 13 days before I got this call from my sister, Mm -hmm. I was sitting at my dining table and I was thinking I need to write the dedication. Who am I going to dedicate this to? And I was like, should I dedicate it to my parents? And I was like, "Mm, I don't know if that feels right. Should I dedicate it to myself? That's a bit arrogant. Should I dedicate it to my friends? That's a bit weird. Mm. So I said, I don't know who to dedicate it to. And then um, kind of out of nowhere, I was like, I'm going to dedicate it to my grandparents. Mm. Um, And I wrote that dedication as it stands and I haven't changed it. And then 
13 days later, I was just about to go for a run and I got this call from my sister and she's audibly upset. And mm. I was like, what's up? She goes, haven't you heard? And I said, heard what? And she goes, oh, um, big mom, um, which is what we used to call her. She has days before oh. she dies. Um, so I came home <clears throat> and then, yeah, two days later, um, yeah, she passed away. And it kind of kills me. And I'm trying really hard not to cry right now. It kind of okay. kills me because she never got to see the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the when there's when the second proof with the the people on the cover and and the dedication in it was printed, she she was already gone. So she never got to see that she's in it that way. Mm-hmm. Um and it's really hard. It's really difficult to talk about. Yeah. Um but yeah, that's 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 the dedication. Um and when I tell that story, people get really upset. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Understandably. So I'm sorry that she passed. And um, I think that's so beautiful that you came to dedicate it to her. And even if she didn't see the final product, she knew what you were doing. And I think both your grandparents would be so proud that they came to this country and your father worked, uh, your grandfather worked as hard as he did. And now his grandson leaves behind and writes this story of something that denotes their culture and where they came from as well. And I think that's something that both your grandparents would be so proud of. Shall we move on to the three things that you helped make sense of? Yes. Um, two, yes. two things you learned on your publishing journey and the third is something that you'd like to make sense of for fellow writers. Um, the first one you want to speak about is a big one. It's one that I think most writers want to hear about um, and is such a large part of the journey to publication for a lot of authors, um, and that is rejection. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience? Oh my God, can I? Um, <laughs> so I, yeah, I started writing these books when I was 17 and I didn't try to get anything published for a little while uh, because it never, never occurred to me that I could. Mm. And then it was when I'd written a YA dystopian series. So that's the time we're talking about quite a while ago now. <laughs> um, and it, yeah, I, I, yeah, one of my friends read it and was like, this should be published. And I was like, you know what? You're not wrong. Um, so I, I sent it to, I remember sitting in my living room on my laptop and I had a list of agents that I just found from like Google, Google and Twitter or whatever. And I email blasted all of them and I didn't make it specific to any of them. I didn't make it specific about myself. I just was like, here's this book. You're going to love it. Um, (laughs) my friend told me to send it to you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. My friend, um, she's got incredible opinions. (laughs) <laughs> that no one has ever seen because she is a nobody. Um, and the rejections came in and I was oh. like, oh no, not even a single request for a manuscript. Uh-oh. Um, and 
it was it was so funny because I didn't feel the sting of it. I just thought this is funny and this is I'm going to learn from this. So then I wrote something else and I sent it again and this time I sent it to less agents and I sent it, mm. you know, with specifics to the agent and then that got rejected. And then that basically, that cycle, I was in that cycle for five years, or maybe six years. Mm. I wrote so much. I wrote yeah. young adult fantasy, <clears throat> young adult science fiction, young adult horror, young adult romance. Then I moved on to adult as I kind of aged out of reading those books. And then I, I started writing adult fantasy, adult sci-fi, adult horror, adult romance, adult contemporary sent all those out they got rejected and then mm. I had this epiphany this this real sudden moment where I was like <clears throat> I read White Teeth and The Reluctant Fundamentalist mm. kind of back to back and they blew my mind because they kind of taught me that I can write about myself in a mm-hmm. way that I wasn't kind of doing before um so I wrote this huge 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 200,000 word literary <laughs> epic um, which no one will ever see. No one will ever see that book. Wow. And it's massive. And I think I called it The Shape of Discontent, oh. um, which tells you all about my literary aspirations. <laughs> yeah. um, the, the what is it? The Grapes of Wrath or whatever. That was me. Yeah. Um, and it was this massive story about this huge family, this intergenerational family. Mm. And everyone's keeping secrets from each other. And yeah, it's so big and so messy and so chaotic and I sent it out and I got a couple of people saying can I have the full manuscript and then when they got the full manuscript they were like oh my god absolutely not (laughs) take it back they were like you know what when I'm going to finish this (laughs) goodbye um and I and but the fact that they'd asked for the manuscript made me think oh my god oh my god I'm onto something um then I wrote another book and I can't remember what I called this one but it was also similarly pretentious. And um, it was 150,000 word epic this time. So I put our 50,000 words. I was like, let's make it a little shorter. Um, And I sent it out to the same list of agents. Can you imagine them rejecting a (laughs) 200? Again. But like it was six months after. So I sent them a 200,000 word epic. And then six months later, sent them 150,000 words. They were like, this man's insane. So does that mean you wrote, that book within that six months yeah I'm insane <laughs> is, is what we're learning today um dedicated <laughs> dedicated <laughs> so I sent them this 150,000 word epic and yeah again this a very similar thing happened where a few of them said would love to read the full manuscript weirdly different agents to the first time the first time oh. the first time agents probably were like I know what's coming so <laughs> this is no thank no, you, thank you. Absolutely not. Goodbye. Um, So I sent out the full manuscript. And then I remember I got this incredible email from an agent whose name I cannot remember now, which is awful. Um, They sent me like a really nice email with like loads of feedback in it, which doesn't often happen with agents. And that's not me criticizing agents. They read so many submissions. Um, They cannot afford to give out feedback. But she'd really connected with something in it. And she said, this is the reason it's not working. It's too long. Mm. Um, weirdly, I think she said she did love the dialogue. So <laughs> there we go. Always been, always been there. Um, but she gave this lovely, lovely email filled with loads of notes. And that was the moment that I stopped writing. So after all these years, after all these years of writing and sending out, writing and sending out, 
not one time had a rejection hit me so hard. Mm. I'd been rejected. I mean, I'd gotten really upset about some rejections. I'd gotten really, you know, angry and irritated with myself and being like, what's not hitting? What's not hitting? But the next day, just start working on something new. Like, just pick myself back up and keep mm. going. Mm. Um, there was something about that email. And I think it was because it was so kind. I think it was such a lovely email to have that it broke something in me. And I was like, mm. oh my God, I can't. I'm so sad now and I can't do this anymore. Um, so I stopped. I remember just pulling back and saying, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not writing. My friend at the time, who's still my friend actually, but she reads everything I write. She was like, you can take some time for yourself, but there's something here. You're like, you're very good. And mm. this is part of the process. And I remember saying to her, I know you're right, but no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just, yeah, I just pulled back. I stopped writing. Mm. I read a lot of books. Um, I read A Little Life in that time, which I love mm-hmm. that book so much. I know it's got its haters. Mm-hmm. I don't say that to mean, I don't I don't mean to condescend to them. Um, there are flaws with that book and I can see why you wouldn't like it, but it blew my mind. I love that book. I read loads of other books during that time that would influence my writing and pull me back in slowly. Um, and then I think what happened was I wrote this, in that space of time of not writing, I wrote a nonfiction essay for a super small indie press, which published it in a book. And that made me think, oh my God, oh my God, ah, I'm good. And then I had a short story accepted for the Good Journal. Mm-hmm. Um, and what kind of blew my mind about that was in the space of time that I wasn't writing, I read a book called Ordinary People by Diana mm-hmm. Evans. And I love that book. I was like, this is such a joyous book and it's so warm and so full of heart. And I really, really loved it and enjoyed the writing. And then she was the person who picked my short story for the Good Journal. Oh. And that blew my mind because I was wow. like, my God, I just read your book and I loved it so much and I saw so much in it. Mm. Um, and now you're saying to me, because she sent me a little short note and she was like, I love this. You're such oh. a good writer. And I was like, oh my God. Um, so that was kind of what it was Diana Evans really mm. who made me think let's go again let's try again you wrote and submitted multiple manuscripts to agents and received multiple turndowns what is it that kept you going um I have this like endless resilience in me because I am really stubborn and so I know that for other people when they get when when they get rejected it can be really hard like I've seen those conversations on Twitter Mm. And almost always, I just want to reply to those people and ask them the question, what is it that you're writing for? Mm-hmm. Which is not a piece of advice, but just a question that I would invite a lot of people to ask themselves because I know that I'm sitting here and I've got a book in the UK and a book in the US. And to some people, that's it, I've, I've made it. Um, so maybe my advice is coming from not a place that they they want to hear it. But I have always, always, always asked myself, what am I writing for? Even when I got this book deal, it was a question I was asking myself. And I tied to that question is, who am I writing for? Mm. Because the answer to the question, what am I writing for, is I'm writing for myself because it's really fun and I love doing it. I love Mm. sitting in writing and creating people and like surprising myself as a writer because there are so many things that happen in good intentions that mm-hmm. I never I never thought were going to happen and they just sort of happened. Like, that's so much fun for me and I enjoy doing it 
so much. So that was the what. And then the who I'm writing for is I always, always knew that I was writing for myself. But in that, I'm writing for people like me. Mm. And I think that that is kind of what's kept me going as well. Like, yes, I'm really stubborn and I have a lot of resilience. But also, if I'm not going to, I think there was like a really, there was, there's a moment where I sort of realized or kind of told myself really that if I stop writing, then my book, my writing, it never reaches people like me. Mm, yeah. Um, and so I think, I think, yeah, my advice would be like to, if the rejection really hurts, sit with it. Absolutely mm. sit with it and let yourself feel that pain and let yourself be sad about it because it is a thing that can make you sad and absolutely should and your feelings are completely valid. But do not sit in it for too long. Sit back up, step away from it and consider what am I writing for? Who am I writing for? Mm. And if you're writing to be published, then it's not really... Um, as somebody who worked in publishing, I can tell you that yes, white people get published more than non-white people, but also a lot of white people don't get published mm. because publishing is, you know, so picky, so choosy. And there are so many people writing all the time and we get submissions constantly, like floods of submissions from agents and agents get even bigger mm. amounts of submissions coming to them. So if you're writing to get published, then I think you have to sit with the the fact that there are so many people writing all the time. There are so mm. many books that don't get published. But if you're writing because you want to present, you want to represent a version of the world that you don't see on the page, then that should be the thing that keeps you going. And I think um, it's really important what you said, that you really learn what you're writing for, because I think that's what can lead you back into the writing and to keep writing, because um, you're right in that if all your your end goal is to have it in a physical form, which obviously is part of a writer's goal. Um, but if you flip it and make the pro prominent part of your writing um, to focus on the reason that you sit down and write, then when you do receive those rejections, it's not that they're rejecting your entire goal to be published in that moment. You, you can pick yourself up and keep going because, as you said, the more important part of your brain is thinking about what is the reason I'm doing this. And so it might be easier to settle back into that. I think that's really, that's really important. The second thing you wanted to make sense of was the editing process and how that changed for you once you went through it as an author. Yeah, of course, of course, of course. So this is the most interesting part about being published if you work in the publishing industry, especially as an editor. And one of the things that I've learned now, or one of the things that I would love to see happen is for every editor in the industry to write a book and have mm. it edited. Mm. Because I have learned, my God, so much, not only just about the editing experience in itself and becoming a better editor, but also how to become a better, you know, editor in my relationship to my author. Mm -hmm. So I've learned how to edit a book better, but I've also very much learned how to be a nicer person to my author. <laughs> because I'm now in the position where I'm like, oh my God, they haven't sent this and they haven't sent this and is this happening and is this happening? And it makes, it's worse for me because I'm in publishing. So I can see mm. when stuff is supposed to happen. And when those things don't happen, I'm immediately thinking, oh my God, they're not doing this for me, but they are doing it. They just haven't mm. told me yet. Mm. And then I also know that we don't tell our authors that. And now, so I realized it's like, 
we should be communicating this kind of stuff to our authors more often. We should be talking to them more often. And it is an it is a heavy burden because editors are doing so much. You know, they are having to do so much more than they had to do 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it is more of a burden on them. And so I'm not sitting here and saying editors are not doing enough. They're doing as much as they can within the window of time that they're given. Mm-hmm. But it's taught me specifically, personally, just to be a much better person to my authors and give them give them the kind of information that I know that they want because it's the information I want, but not mm-hmm. at a time that I've been taught to give it, if that makes sense. Yeah. But what what is that information that you want? Is it that you want response when you're thinking as an author? Is it that you want a response to, you know, a draft that you've sent off or some edits that you've made? What is it that doesn't get communicated? So it's beyond it's beyond the editing because I think in the editing process, the author and the editor are constantly talking. Mm-hmm. They're constantly talking and you're like, okay, this is great. But then when the manuscript is finished, then it's silenced <laughs> for quite a while. And what's happening on the editor side is, as an editor myself, I can say, we are working on proofs and we're coming up with a marketing campaign and a publicity mm. campaign and we're talking to sales and we're talking to rights and production and blah, 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 blah. We're doing all this stuff. But the author hears mm, nothing. And so then as an author, you're thinking, are they are they doing anything? I've just gone from having multiple conversations with my editor every single week to hearing mm. nothing for a couple of months. What's going on? And so that's that's the big thing that I've learned, which is post-editing. Mm. An author is probably driving themselves crazy, thinking they don't care about my book anymore. Mm. Is it still a priority for them? All this other stuff. And that's the thing that, is really important to me now with mm-hmm. my authors. Should it be happening? Should we be hearing about that? And then she'll come back and she'll say, okay, no, don't worry about it. We'll hear about it mm. at this point. So I would really advise authors, like, you know, if you, as an editor, I've learned to be more open and communicative. If you're not feeling that way, you're not feeling like your editor is being that way, your agent is there to have that conversation with mm-hmm. your editor and to kind of provide you with the information that you don't feel like you're getting. Um, so I would you know, lean on your agent. Okay. And it, that's interesting that because you do know so much of how the inner workings are in publishing that you still do lean on Juliet and use her as a resource. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because I'm also, the thing is, it's like a double-edged sword. I'm also aware of how little time editors have. Mm, yeah. And I can't go to my editor and be like, hey, has this very specific one tiny thing happened? Because... Yeah. It, it is a bit overwhelming and I'm not the only author that an editor has. So I'm in this very interesting space where I'm like learning to be more communicative with my authors mm. whilst also understanding that my editor can't give me that same level of mm-hmm. communication because I'm an assistant editor. I don't have that many authors, but my editor is an editorial director. She's got loads of authors. So I understand that she can't give me that space. Mm. But then also because I'm in publishing and I know things are happening, I'm freaking myself out that they're not happening. It's very, it's real complicated. (laughs) The thing you wanted to make sense of for fellow writers was to encourage them to read and write constantly. I want to ask you if you read across all genres and also how you separate reading for work and reading for pleasure. In terms of like separating between working for my job and working for pleasure, before I got my book deal, I was kind of reading for work all the time. Mm. So we get so many submissions. I was kind of sending them to my Kindle and then spending a lot of time on the weekends and evenings reading these books. But that was because my job meant so much to me. 
And I was still managing to find the time to read for pleasure. It just wasn't as often. But since the book deal, because I now need to, I now need to protect my time. And I need to be able to segment time off and be like, this is book time. This Mm -hmm. is where I'm editing a book or doing a podcast or writing an essay or an article or whatever, whatever needs to be done. And this is time for my pleasure. I have now stopped reading work stuff outside of work time. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a big conversation I had with my boss because I was like, you know, this is unpaid labor. Mm-hmm. You're not paying me to work outside of my job. And it's something that everyone in publishing kind of seems to accept as just the norm. Mm-hmm. But actually, I now need to give, I now need to hoard that time for myself. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like asking for that is, I don't even think I should need to ask for it. Mm-hmm. She's been very nice about it and said, absolutely, I completely get it. So now my reading time happens at work for work which means outside of work, I now, I'm finding I'm actually have more time to read for pleasure. So I'm reading loads at the moment. Like I've mm. just finished reading my seventh book of this month. <laughs> which is February, 25th of February, seven books. I also think when you start reading and you read at the rate that you're obviously reading, that it does become you do pick up a book quicker as well rather than choose to pick up your phone or whatever it is but you get into some sort of rhythm with reading as well yeah and I'm also not on TikTok (laughs) ah big one that helps I'm sure so I've refused to make one because all I keep hearing from people is that oh my god I get on it and I'm there for four hours and I'm like how is that how is that an advertisement you're not advertising it to me so there is that element of it um but yeah essentially um yeah I'm reading a lot I'm reading a lot and I love I love reading so much and for genres yeah I read across pretty much but pulling this back now to like the the writing advice which for for me is like write as much as you can read as much Mm. as you can if you're a science fiction fantasy also and you read a literary book you're probably going to learn something that any Mm. other science fiction fantasy book is not going to be able to teach you Mm-hmm. they're doing such different things and you can bring that into your writing and similarly for a literary person go read a commercial book and mm-hmm. also I don't know why we talk about commercial as like a bad word <laughs> you know because it, the only reason it's commercial is because it sells incredibly well mm. and that's a good thing we're reading mm. more readers I don't know why we talk about it in such terrible ways but you know I tend to think of my book as like a commercial literary book Mm-hmm. whereas I've had people talk about it as a literary book and I'm like actually do you know what I don't think it is that literary I think it's really accessible and easy to read and I think the things it's dealing with are literary but actually because I read so widely and I read quite a lot of commercial mm-hmm. my writing is quite easy it's quite accessible it just pulls you in that's a really good thing for me because it means yeah. that people who might not consider themselves to be literary readers might pick this book up mm-hmm. and that's essentially what we want what we all want Exactly. So, um, yeah, I, I, I would say read outside of your genre. It teaches you, it just teaches you so much. And also you might come across something that might blow your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as a writer, yeah, you, you will learn stuff from reading across genres. But the write more thing, the amount of writers that I speak to who are like, oh, I really want to write. But, and I'm like, God, I just write. Yeah, just like, just write, yeah. just sit down and write. And I know that I'm, 
I know that people's lives are so hard and so different yeah. and so yeah. complicated and you might not find the time for it. And that's okay. And I'm not actually speaking to those people. I'm mm. speaking to the very specific kind of writers you see on Twitter who are on Twitter talking about wanting to write. And I'm like, you're on Twitter right now. Mm. What are you stopping on Twitter? <laughs> and go write. <laughs> but do you remember the books that you were reading when you were writing Good Intentions? Or do you try not to read while you're... I mean, you were right, right. You wrote that in six weeks, but maybe you read like six books in those six weeks as well while you wrote. I can't. No one's ever asked me that question before. I actually can't remember um, mm-hmm. what I was reading because I, I do read while I write because it's just okay. part of my life. Like I watch TV while I write. I watch film while yeah. I write. I never, I know that there are quite a few writers who are like, I would never read a book while I'm writing because I don't want it to affect me. Mm. Um, I don't tend to have that when I'm writing. Um, I don't really know why, but actually I have no idea what I would have been reading mm. at that time. I could go into my um, story graph account because I don't use Goodreads because it's owned by Amazon um, and I could find it, but nothing is coming to mind apart from the fact that just before I had read A Little Life, let's see, mm-hmm. and Ordinary People by Diana Evans. Okay, interesting. Um, but yeah, at the time, you're right. I would have probably been reading something, but I yeah. can't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to end on, I wanted to ask what your favourite thing is about being a writer. Oh, it's this. It's this. It's the talking to somebody who's read my work and wants to talk about it with me and liked it. And and not just like the narcissistic, oh, please tell me it's good, but like the the like let's have like a really deep conversation about all these things. And even that, it's not about me wanting to say, well, this is why I wrote it and this is my intention. It's more like, oh my God, what did you get from it? What did mm. you see in it? And that's that's it. Thank you. I mean, I want to say, I, I could, I think I, we could talk forever, but this the person editing this podcast is going to really have trouble. Yeah, I'm so sorry. It's like two hours long. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jane, but we'll do it. We'll get we'll get all the good stuff. And what I want to say is that we're going to have you on for a second part where um, you speak more from the perspective as your role as an assistant editor. But um, I want to say thank you for writing the book that you did. Thank you for bringing um, a space that people like me, people like you can see themselves in. I think that you should be so proud, your family and friends, everyone that's helped you along the way should be so proud because it's such a beautiful book and it's going to be discussed and spoken about and um, reviewed so well because you can see the warmth and the depth and the complexity that you bring in such a way that makes it easy for people that don't come from these worlds to understand as well. And I can't wait for you to hear more about how great your dialogue is because you've done such a great job. And thank you also for saying yes to coming on this podcast um, because I think this is going to help writers um, uh, hear your story and hear all of the wisdom that you've shared with us today. Absolutely. I mean, I just, I would always, always, always be blown away by the fact that people choose to read my book. Like it means so much. Reading a book is such a it is such a thing that you immerse yourself in for hours at a time. It's not mm. like watching a TV show, which you can do whilst being on TikTok or <laughs> watching a film or even listen to a podcast, which I, I often do when I'm cooking or cleaning or mm. at the gym. Reading a book is just such a sit down and do job that I am always really thankful for people who chose to do that with my book. And 
the fact that you chose to do it and you saw so much in it and you related to so much that you wanted to sit down and talk to me for two hours i'm so sorry jane <laughs> um about it <laughs> is, is it means the world to me so like thanks like thank you i would happily give up my entire life to do stuff like this because it, it blows my mind that people want to have these conversations with me As you can tell, we spoke for much longer than what you heard today. I'll put together all the extra content and wisdom that Kasim shared into a bonus episode for you to listen to in the coming weeks. Kasim joins us once again in another episode to talk about his role as assistant editor at Penguin, as we aim to help make sense of the industry for writers, but also for future publishing hopefuls. If you enjoyed this episode of Make It Make Sense with Sarika Tanendra Dharaman, I would love if you would rate, review or subscribe to the podcast to help others find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Make It Make Sense.